Thank you again for joining us for another one of our Bible studies as we go through this Discipleship Bible Study Workbook, The Foundations. If you don't have it in hand, grab it so that you can follow along. We're going to chapter 7. We're talking about local church in this, our fourth installment of this particular topic. If you don't have this booklet, then check the email. We have notes that were sent out for the section that we're covering this evening. As we get ready to go through the material, we're going to be talking this evening about brides, marriage. So I thought we'd do a little bit of trivia about wedding and marriage and just throw some questions up there for you to see just to get our minds working. What did the word bride, brew, originally mean in its original intent and language? Woman, beautiful, gift from God, delicate cook, cleaner, mother of brood, in charge, or a servant? Any guesses? What was that? Beautiful is not it. In charge, not it. Delicate, no. And you had said mother of brood as well. The answer is a cook. Somebody who made broth was the idea. Here we go. It is proven that men who kiss their wives each morning, this happens. Okay? They're happier than men who don't. They're happy. They have happier wives than men who don't kiss them. Live longer than men who don't kiss them. Be heavier in weight than men who don't kiss their wives each morning. Make more money than men who don't. Avoid a lot more marital conflicts than men who don't. What's that? Heavier Heavier is not right. (laughs) Uh, Be happier than men who don't could be, but that's not what this study proved. They live longer is right. On average, they live five years longer. And as we were joking about, it's probably because murder's not involved. The ancient Romans put the wedding band on the fourth finger of the hand for these reasons. Most were right-handed, so as by default went to the left hand. Thought this finger had a big vein to the heart, direct to the heart, hand that held the shield, wife being a protective factor in the life. Only official royal business military rings were on this hand, so by default it had to, the marriage had to go ring had to go to the other hand. Typically smallest of the three middle digits, therefore you can make a cheaper ring. And the answer is the right hand. Nope, not the right handed. The answer is the vein, they said there was a major vein that went directly to the heart from that one finger. So it was the vein of love. American survey, number one factor for a happier marriage is friendship, laughter, forgiveness, compatibility, sex, trust, kids, money. And you are thinking, laughter was suggested. Sex was suggested. Compatibility was suggested. Money was suggested. Friendship was all good answers, but the actual answer is, number one, was trust. Then we said, how much time do married couples spend in, time, in daily private conversation? Was it under five minutes, 10, 30, 45, about an hour, one to two hours a day, or more? Under five is guessed immediately, and that is right. The average is four minutes per day. Average cost of a wedding in the United States in 2019 was under 5, 7,500, 10,000, 15,000, 20, 25, 30,000. How do you think this works? The average cost of a wedding is 15 is not right. Over 30 is not right. Around 20 is absolutely right. Now, we then went a little bit further. We want to ask what states are the higher than the 20000 the highest cost for uh, the average cost of a wedding. Which state do you think is number one? 
California is not even there. Hawaii is there, and it's number one. The others were Alaska, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, District of Columbia, New Jersey, and Hawaii is number one for the cost. Then we'll flip it over. Which states have the lowest average cost for a wedding? Minnesota and Pennsylvania are not a part of this group. What did you say? Idaho. Idaho is not in there. Arkansas is there. In fact, all around Arkansas, we have Louisiana, New Mexico, Tennessee, West Virginia, Kentucky, Arkansas, number one cheapest is Alabama. Pennsylvania is right in the middle of all these things, right around 28.8. Americans surveyed the worst household chores that most couples consider the worst, and they argue about what are they? 80%. Doing the dishes is there. Dusting is, we can say it's there. Taking the trash out, I suppose if, if you, it could be modified in there. Vacuuming is, here's the top six. Grocery shopping, cooking the meal, sweeping and vacuuming, cleaning the bathroom, laundry, and number one was washing the dishes. Longest number of years in modern time that a couple was married. 77, 82, 85, 87, 89, or over 90. 89 is not right. You're close. Over 90 is the couple from the United Kingdom that were married 90 plus some months after that until he passed away in 2016, she a couple years later. We're going to talk this morning about this idea of making people long-lasting in their faith to Jesus Christ and being loyal to him, and that's going to come by helping them to be disciples. And so we're taking our discipleship material, we're jumping in, talking about what you can do to help that friend, that family member to come to faith and and then to remain faithful to Jesus Christ by focusing on them, training them, mentoring them, being there for them. So we're in our foundations book. Again, if you don't have it, grab the notes from the email so you can follow along. And we're in chapter 7. We're talking about local church. Again, this is the fourth of a lesson, and we're taking our time in this one just because this is such a critical, critical uh, section for helping people to really remain loyal and to grow, and the importance of it is just uh, is just so 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 uh, essential that we relay that to individuals, especially in this day and time when commitment is often questioned or challenged. And so, what we've talked about so far is the local church, that idea that the words literally mean to come out of a secular group, coming out to do business. Uh, The guilds of Acts chapter 19, or those who are born again, coming out, committing to one another, and saying, we're going to do the business of God. So the ecclesia, the called out ones, shows up a lot in Scripture. And our contention is that in the New Testament... The large majority of those occasions where we talk about church, it is talking about a local church. Not just being a part of Christendom and part of the family of God, but rather to be involved in a geographically centered local assembly of individuals, the term local church. Lots of times in scriptures it shows up and very clearly that we're talking about churches in a certain region, churches in a certain town. Frequently through the Bible it talks about, gives that idea that we're not talking about this mass worldwide assembly but rather local geographically centered assemblies such as this body of Christ. And so it shows up again in a lot of passages. We've talked about it is how, uh, before 
about all these illustrations and then we went a little bit further and said that this idea of establishing local churches was throughout the book of Acts. That's the whole purpose of the missions journeys and what he's doing. We said that much of the New Testament is written to local church in particular. Rome, Corinth, we talk about the churches of Galatia, Ephesians, Philippia, Thessalonica, Colossae. A lot of them are to specific local groups but then they can share it with the others. And then we made this comment that several of the New Testament epistles are written to pastors, instructing them on how to lead in those local churches. And then some of the themes of those, pa- of those books are organization within local church, who to choose for deacons, qualifications for pastors, what to do with the finances, how to care for the widows financially, church service, the worship service itself, how it's supposed to be administrated and to be operating, as well as the teachings what you're supposed to do in protecting from false teachers in a local assembly. So that idea of local church is really, really, really important. We make the statement, no doubt about it, the idea of local church is a major theme throughout the New Testament. And so, the, so is the idea of believers being actively involved in a local church ministry. Now, we're going to build upon that very last thought, but let me just insert this. In the Bible, Jesus frequently uses types, illustrations, allegories, parables, taking events or circumstances or uh, items from everyday life and then using them as illustrations of a spiritual truth that helps explain and expand that spiritual truth. Let me illustrate. Jesus talks about, in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower and the seed. We look at that parable, we get an idea of what he's talking about, but there are spiritual truths clearly illustrated within this text. Some of those would include this idea, God's word is powerful, permeates any soil. The idea that the word of God should be spread indiscriminately, with uh, just give it out and let it fall where it would. The idea that there are different heart responses, just like there are different soils, so that we have to make sure our heart is the good soil, responsive to the Word of God, not caught up with the cares of the world. Jesus did that on another occasion. He talks about human life being like a flower. He did this in his Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember the lesson or lessons he used to teach that? Well, he talked about how God cares for the flowers, God cares for us. Elsewhere, that same idea of life being human life being like a flower was talking about the brevity, how in its beauty, the flower is there for a season, but it passes, so our lives pass away quickly. There is that idea that Jesus used when he talked about man not living by bread alone, but by the word of God, that God's word is like food to us. It provides nourishment. It needs to be taken in. The one picture that Jesus used that we are most familiar with is that idea of being born again. Just like we were birthed physically, so we need to be born spiritually. And there's lots of lessons that you could say, okay, this is what it was picturing. It was picturing the idea that the one giving the birth is the one who suffers and pains. The idea it's a one-time event. The idea that it's momentary. It's not a It's not a process of years, but you have to have a momentary one-time event where you're born again. It creates a lasting relationship. You can build upon that in another way if you choose, but let's do the final one. Jesus is the door. Clearly, he's not talking about him being physically hanging on a post and a hinge, but the idea of spiritual truth, he is the one and only access into a relationship with God. Now, he did that same type of thing when he's talking about the church. He used lots of pictures 
that were in common life that the people would understand that had spiritual significance. They expanded upon what he was trying to explain. Some of those, like the temple of God, they would understand. A bride, a pillar and ground of truth, a candlestick, the flock, the body of Christ. And so those are what we're talking about. And what I had asked you to do is as we're going through... You say, and write in your notes, the idea of what really significant truth or, or idea is being illustrated by this picture. Write it there so you can share that with those that you're discipling and you have this one truth that's pungent to you, that is very important, that is poignant to you, excuse me, that is very important and it wants to make a real impact that you want to share with that other individual. And so we talk about some of these pictures already, Christ's body, just like this physical body, so is the church, all different types of ideas, the most common used illustration. We talked about the family, you are of the household of God, you are the family of God. We talked about the idea that he uses a flock, that we are sheep, he's the shepherd, the idea that he was going to add us to that flock in the future, the idea that that he is the chief shepherd, there are under shepherds, and that we're supposed to be careful of the wolves that come in. He developed lots of ideas that were parallel spiritually to what happens in everyday life. What we wanted to just stop and pause and say, what did those three, we talked already about the family, the body, we mentioned already the flock. What did they have in common? What is a common thread going through all three of those pictures? Well, we could say this. We could say the love, love that God has for us, the love we should have for one another, the care and concern that God has for us, we should have for one another, the idea of unity, all different types of members united into one flock, one body, that idea, a relationship with one another, that idea goes a little bit further. A dependence that the different members have upon the Lord, being the head or being the shepherd, or the idea that we should ha have a dependence one upon another, just like our body members have. And so the uniqueness. But I think this is a very important thought that we want to stress with the new convert and make sure we remember the importance of being a part of a bigger group. Not being a, a, a lone ranger off to by yourself, but rather being involved in a body, in a family, in a flock. The importance of the local church. Stressed once again. And so we, we would highlight that by saying a Christian without a local church is like a hand without a body. That idea of a, of a Christian without a church is like an orphan without a family. Something's missing. The idea of a Christian without a local church is like a sheep without a flock. So they're in danger. Something's missing. And so that idea of being together, it is continued when we talk about the building. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in this section of scripture, there Christ is saying, okay, let me give you another illustration. And so Paul writes, and he says in the end of verse 9, you are Christ's building. Now we look at that, and we say, okay, what's he obviously mentioning? Now you're or stressing. Your notes would give you this type of information that collectively we are called a building. The word picture highlights the ownership of God over this building. As well, it's an ongoing process of growth, of building. And we understand that. We know that. We experience that. That we are constantly being molded. We're being strengthened. We're being put together to build up one another. And so what we want to do is we want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be reading a couple of the verses. But before you read the verses, let me set the context. It is very important to get the bigger picture of the verses. And you understand that as you explain this to that new convert that you're dealing with. In this section, the Corinthians have favorite teachers. 
And they are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And they are, they are highlighting and they are elevating their favorite teacher. Paul is going to stress that, wait a minute, we don't elevate teachers. God is the main cause. Who then is Paul, verse 5? Who is Apollos? But ministers, servants, by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. And he said, verse 7, So then there neither is he that planteth, plants anything, neither he that waters, but God. Very important, two words. But God is the important factor in this idea of building that gives the increase. Because he that plants, he that waters are one, and they're going to be rewarded. But that whole idea is everything belongs to God. This building is all of God. His work, his ownership, and not some favorite teacher. And so we are merely laborers is what he's going to stress. We are fellow workers. <coughs> no one is to be exalted above the other laborers because it's all of God. Paul calls himself a wise master builder. That idea of one who's drawing up some plants, supervising the work. But it's still of God. God is the important factor. And Paul talks about how in Corinth when he came, he laid the foundation for the ministry as the founder of the church. And that foundation he's going to make sure that they understand is Christ. But others after him, they helped build upon this or build together this building that God was doing through these co-laborers. The foundation he's going to make sure is that everybody understands the foundation is Jesus Christ. Interesting, Paul doesn't say it's, um, it's himself. But, but or the other apostles. It's not something new or novel. It is idea of everything starts with Jesus Christ. His person, his work, his teachings. And so as we think this through, he develops right after that, that idea that every man is building wood, wood uh, stubble, hay, or gold, silver, precious stones. The idea beyond that is the good foundation is critical, but what we do on top of that is also important, that we use the right materials, the right motives, the right building factor. And so all of that together leads us to this passage that we say, okay, let's read in the middle of it. You are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. So we ask the question, what role do spiritual leaders such as pastors play in Christ's church building program? We would answer it this way. They need to help make sure believers are building together on the right foundation. As master builders, they help devise a plan. They help put together some type of, of uh, projects and organization and, and goals that we have as the ministries grow. As the leaders in the church, they need to make sure that whatever we do as a church, whatever we employ, that everything is founded upon the teachings of Jesus Christ. That we are building upon him. That we are following what he has said. And so as leaders in the church, as overseers, we need to help to direct the body that oversees a supervisor of a working group, direct the body into working together so that everyone labors to contribute to the growth of the building. Another question, or another verse that comes up. Okay, You are of God's family. You, and he goes on, and having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And so we look at that verse, and we have to make an observation before we answer the questions in the book. Is this a contradiction from what we just read? Where he makes that, con that idea, the apostles are the foundation. 
Go back again. Look at that. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, in 1 Corinthians, he said Jesus Christ is the foundation. Some who are critical of the scripture say this is a contradiction. Not really if you understand terms from Bible days, the ancient Near East, when they built. They used terminology like this. There was a chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone was a singular stone that was laid upon, first you had a foundation, and then in the corner you put a stone, and all the other stones were lined up according to that one stone, or chief cornerstone. And the foundation stones is the term that they would use for the first layer that was built upon the cement or the foundation that was underground. The first layer of stones that lined up with the, with the chief cornerstone were called foundation stones. And so it seems that what Paul is talking about in this passage when he talks about the apostles being the foundation is not a contradiction, but that first layer, Jesus Christ, then the apostles, form the initial foundation and the secondary foundation. And so we look at this and we ask the question, what role did the apostles and prophets play Okay, as they laid out the foundation, the beginning of the church. Well, they helped spread the gospel at the very beginning. We know that. They helped pen, write down the teachings of Jesus Christ. We know that they provided a lot of information, basic information. They provided examples and ideas about how we were supposed to function. In the very early years of the church, they laid the foundation stones. They told us about church officers, how to conduct services, handling of finances. They give us examples on what to preach, how to preach. They tell us how to deal with issues within the church. If there's conflict, if there is question, the communion service. So they laid that secondary layer of foundation to help us out. There's another passage that says, you also are lively, literally, living stones. You are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Today, we are all part of God's ongoing building program as living stones. We understand that. What specific ministries, now you're talking with somebody and saying, what can you do to help build others within this body of Christ? You might write down these ideas, witnessing, sharing the gospel, mentoring others, visiting, praying, sending notes, or calls of encouragement, comforting, visiting the widows. The idea of assisting in some of the local church ministries, the Sunday schools, the nurseries, the music, the idea of, of all those different things, but you want to help that individual to understand they can contribute at different levels, and they can do it from the beginning that they get involved, make some contributions to help the body. Then we talk about this idea in your notes that, just like we've said already, that a hand without a body, that it just can't function. A sheep needs a flock to be really functioning. A Christian without a local church is like a brick without a building. The theme, again, that we need to be a part of that local church. So if we look at the idea of a building, think to yourself, what stands out about the building? What singular thought? I had several that I just wrote down. God's ownership, progress, the idea of growing, God doing the major work, contributing. You may have some other better ideas. I'd love to hear those from you as we get together next week. You share those with us. But let's pick up another picture, the bride. We talked about, we joked about the idea of brides and weddings and marriages. Well, in the New Testament, this is a frequent, uh, or I should say an elaborated, built upon idea of Jesus Christ in the church. We read in Ephesians 5. 
That whole idea about Jesus Christ and his bride. And in that text in Ephesians 5, he's talking about practical ideas about husbands and wives. But he goes back continuously saying this is a picture of Christ and the church. Look in verse 21. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands are the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, boy, he makes the analogy so clear. Let wives be to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes, cherishes it, even as the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined, and the two shall be one flesh. Again, emphasizing that unity, just like there is between a husband and wife. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, the wife, see that she reverence her husband. So we look at that passage and we answer these questions very simply, quickly. Christ is the blank and the blank of the body. Well, that's clear. He is the head. He is the Savior. How then should you and I, as part of a church, how should we respond to Jesus Christ? Very clearly, submit to him is a major theme here. That we're to submit, follow his leadership voluntarily, personally, consistently. Let's take another question that comes up. According to verse 25, how did Christ demonstrate his love for the church? You look at it. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Very simple, but very profound. Who initiated the relationship? Jesus did. Jesus did. He reached out to the church, to the believers. We go a little bit further. We say, okay, look at this verse, verse 16, that he might... Actually, verse 26, excuse me, it's a typographical error. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Looking at that, answer this question. Christ continues to show his love for you and me by regularly sanctifying and cleansing us with his word. How can you contribute to the process of this cleansing? Through the word. Well, that's a simple one. You get the word into you and you get into the word. How do you do that? Well, you would say, okay, reading my Bible, listening to messages, Bible studies, attending church services regularly where we're doing Bible studies, doing even more Bible study on your own, memorizing scripture, you can add to that, whatever you'd like. But the idea of you in the word, the word in you to help create purity in your life, to help you to be sanctified the way he wants. Then in verse 29, the comment is, No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord. What words in this verse show how much Christ cares for the bride, the church? Easy. Telling husbands how to love and care. That's the theme. And he uses the phrase, even as the Lord loves and cares for the church. 
He uses these other words. Nourish means to strengthen, to meet another person's needs. The idea of cherish, to highly value another person. And again, the whole verse stresses the idea of one flesh. That he doesn't hate his own flesh. He's not supposed to dishonor his wife. She is his flesh. That unity factor. So we go a little bit further. and We read in James the idea that he says to the readers, you are adulterers. You are adulteresses. Know ye not that friendship with the world is putting yourself at enmity or being at odds with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Why does he use the word adulterer and adulteresses to these believers who are friends with the world? Well, very clearly, we are committed to Jesus Christ. We are in a union with him. We commit spiritual adultery when we are unfaithful to the Lord, when we do things that would offend him, that would, would violate his commands and what he desires of us. So getting involved in worldly activity is really, really, really serious from the viewpoint of God. And then you could be pointed with the person that you're talking to. Are there any instances that in the past where you have committed? You know, what would be, and ask them to illustrate, what would be spiritual adultery against Jesus Christ? And you could list out lots of different um, practices of people putting other things ahead of Jesus Christ. People... Um, using his name in vain, people violating his, his purity, his holiness. You, you can list out a variety of different ideas that are very practical and might apply specifically to areas that that individual needs to grow. And so in a single word, let's come back to the conclusion here. Okay, as we're putting on each one of these passages, when you think of the bride of Christ, what singular idea or phrase would you write down to say, this is what I think it emphasizes? Does it emphasize Christ's commitment? That's true. How about his love for us? That is true. A unique relationship with Jesus Christ. That is a truth. Intimacy with him. As a bride and a groom, there's intimacy, so we have that with Jesus Christ. A union with him. That we are one with him, just as a couple becomes one. The idea of we are in an honored position. That we are elevated as his special one. The idea that we should be subject to him. The idea that he provides for us. His constant care for us. A permanent relationship that we hadn't stressed, but that's the idea of scripture is that we are permanently wed to Christ. That idea of choice. We choose him. He chooses us. You may have other ideas. All of these are true, but what impacts you that you want to share with that other individual that you're training? Let's take one more idea, one more illustration that is given in Scripture that talks about Jesus Christ and his church. He calls us Christ's army. Now, let's be frank about it. This picture is strikingly different from the other pictures, like the sheep in a flock, the idea of a bride and a groom. Here we have the idea of describing as an army. Scripture is talking about a militancy an aggressiveness that wasn't in those other pictures. But it's a truism. The idea that the church is not to be a cluster, a, a remote clustered group of people in a monastery, we're not supposed to hide out from the world. No, we're supposed to be actively involved, engaged in battling for the word of God, for souls of men, for purity. I'm going to add to that that we are actively to, re, we are to actively resist Satan's attacks, his influences that he has had upon the world around us, upon the church, and upon other believers. And so this idea 
comes from Scripture, and there is no singular verse that says the church is the army of God. But there are multiple references that you may, may, may want to add to your note that give this concept of military activity by the church. We could start listing off with that, same, that verse that, that talks about the beginning of the church, where Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Idea already being that there's going to be a predicted conflict. There's going to be a clash between the gates of hell and the believers. The Second Timothy talks about enduring hardness as a good soldier that you may please him who has chosen you to be a soldier. He talks about fighting the good fight. We read in Second Corinthians where he's talking in this text about we walking in the flesh but we do not war in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal to the pulling down of strongholds. We would go to that passage that most of you probably thought of right away. Ephesians 6 where he talks about that idea of putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the attacks of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities of powers, against rulers of darkness in high places, uh, darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take upon the whole armor. All of those, uh, those phrases give the idea that we, as a group of believers, were in a battle. We're in a warfare against evil. And so building upon that, we want to make sure that we understand in our own minds that although we are to be loving, although we are to be showing meekness and gentleness. By the way, these two verse, the two words precede the verse that talks about pulling down the strongholds, the weapons of our warfare, that we're supposed to have a meekness and a graciousness, a gentleness about us. But even though we have that meekness and gentleness, we are not supposed to be spiritual pacifists. We are supposed to pull down the strongholds. We are to actively engage in opposing evil. In fact, we are to stand against the wiles of the devil. We are to use an offensive weapon, the sword. Some would point out that when he's talking about that idea of the gates of hell not prevailing, the concept, the picture is, if the gates of hell where, where the evil is clustered and behind those gates, that they are there, we're on the attack in the sense that we're moving forward and we're not in a defensive but an offensive position. Fight the good fight. Jesus Christ himself. You want to make sure that people understand that yes, he is a servant, but he is also in this age considered a warrior. That he is going to be one who's going to come with judgment. That he's going to come with power. And that he's pictured even in the Old Testament where we talk about the servant text. He is also said to rule with a rod of iron. That he will stamp out all those who are doing unrighteousness. So this idea of aggressive Christian activity is true. It is a biblical concept. And so we read in your notes, this charge I commit to you, Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before, that by them you might war a good warfare. What do we learn? What do we learn about the church and its militant nature? We're in a spiritual battle, clearly implied. To fight well, we need to follow the word of God. We need to war according to the prophecies. We also would read this, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that wars entangles himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who chose him to be a soldier. Again, what do we learn about the church's militant theme? We would learn this, that God has appointed us 
to battle for Jesus Christ, for truth, for righteousness. As soldiers, we're going to face difficulties. We're going to face challenges. The idea of suffering is inevitable. The hard, hardships that he talks about, that, that idea of enduring hardness, the command is to endure. The command isn't to just you know, let hardness come. It's going to come. You just need to be persistent to endure. As soldiers, don't get focused on comfort or upon the idea of civilian pursuits. Do you know what's implied here? We are never discharged from his army. The idea is that we are always enlisted in his army. We are never all of a sudden done and can go back to being, to being involved with this world. We're not supposed to do that. We are supposed to be soldiers who fight the good fight, who press on. Now, in closing, let me ask you this question. In order for somebody to be victorious, if you're engaged in battle, what do you need to be victorious? What does somebody need to have? What does a soldier need? What do the troops need in order to be victorious? Think about that for a moment. What would we need? Let me suggest this, okay? We need to have good leaders. Leadership provided by Jesus Christ. To have a good strategy, okay? The idea of having clear communication from the top down, telling what the strategy is. There would need to be a following of the orders or we're going to be defeated. There would need to be Soldiers who are well equipped. Soldiers who are in good shape. Soldiers who know how to use the weapons that have been provided. Trained in combat. The individuals who have a good supply line. So they don't run out of the, the foods, the weapons, the ammunition that they need. They need to know their enemy. Now you look at this in a very practical way. This is true modern ancient warfare. In order to have victory. And you look at that list... And here is the truth. God has done his part. He has given us leadership. He has given us orders. He's been very clear in communicating it. He makes sure the supply line is there. But have we done our part? Have we engaged in learning? Keeping ourselves fit? The idea of knowing our enemy. Are we following his orders? So this concept of being a part of his military means we don't retreat, we don't surrender, but we move forward and we keep on battling. So as you look at that idea of Christ's army, that illustration, that figure, what stands out to you? What singular thought would come to mind that you want to impress upon the individual that you're talking to? I might put down these. There's an enemy, clearly stated, there's opposition. We need to oppose evil. We need to have good organization. Weapons are involved. Training is involved. Hardships are involved. Endurance. Working together. Not being a solo soldier. Riding horses might come to your mind and coming down from heaven with Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to explain that to them. But this is the singular thought that I think is most important. Victory. Victory as we remain faithful, as we reach out, as we train others, as we do discipleship, there is victory as we work and labor for Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for joining us today and for this lesson. We're going to pick up with it next week. Thanks for being here. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. God bless you.